you're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 16 today. At the outset, I just want to say, if not properly understood, this book might seem rather boring. Uh, it's not filled with exciting stories and such. Uh, in fact, for the past several weeks, if you've been listening online or here, uh, we've been going over the different roles in the church, the, the roles of men and the roles of women, the roles of elders, the roles uh, of deacons, and some might be thinking, uh, how practical is that? But I want to tell you that the point of all of this, which is a very important point, is that truth matters. Truth really does matter. Truth is the foundation on which we stand and upon which we build, or everything will fall if it's not based on the truth. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're actually going to go back to foundations of uh, biblical truth. And so we see this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 14 through 16, where Paul really tells why he is writing this entire letter. So here is the word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that right now that we would tremble at your word. I pray that I would decrease and you would increase. I pray that your truth would come out more than my personality. I pray that I would not be seen, but that you would be seen. As we talk about the basics, the basics of what it means to be in your family, Lord, I pray for those of us who are in your family that you would just remind us of these tremendous truths. And if there's anyone here that does not know you, is not in your family, oh God, I pray that you would draw them. I pray that you would draw them, and I pray that us who do believe would be lifting them up and praying that today would be the day that they enter into the family of God. Guide us today. This is your word. Help me not to mess it up, but help me to proclaim your truth, and I just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Returning to the fundamentals is essential in almost anything that we do. Uh, if you are playing an instrument, which I never did, um, you have to know the fundamentals. You have to know where to place your hands or your fingers or lip positions, depending on what uh, instrument that you're playing. You have to know the fundamentals. For years, I coached soccer, and every year when the new season would start and every practice, we would start with the fundamentals, the basics of dribbling and passing. You cannot set those aside. If you've ever seen someone playing basketball, training for basketball, you will see, among other things that they do, is they will stand at that free throw line for hours, shooting the same shot 
over and over and over again because it is foundational. It is a fundamental. Vince Lombardi, the Hall of Fame coach for the Green Bay Packers, uh, was notorious for his emphasis on uh, the fundamentals. His team won championships because they could tackle and block and execute plays because of that emphasis on the fundamentals. It's said once uh, that he actually, after a, a game where they played uh, a poor game, that he walked into the locker room, held up a football, and said, gentlemen, this is a football. Pointing them back to the fundamentals, the basics. Just in case you forgot, we are here to play football. Studying the deep doctrines of the Bible can be very exciting. I've been doing it for decades, uh, and I always love to delve uh, deep into theological discussions. As a teenager, I was reading uh, books that were designed for adults, um, and I loved to debate with people, and I loved to flaunt my knowledge of the Bible uh, to other people. Around the age of 20, I remember uh, encountering a friend who knew me well, and she told me, she looked at me, assessed all the knowledge that I had, how I uh, was living, and she said, I think you need to do a study on grace. You need to do a study on grace. And I scoffed at her in my mind, and I was thinking, are you serious? Like, I'm studying predestination and free will. I'm studying covenant theology. I'm, I'm studying these deep things. Why in the world would I want to digress and study such a basic thing as grace. And so I didn't. I didn't listen to what she had to say. After all, if you're singing the magnificent hymn, How Great Thou Art, with a full orchestra behind you, it seems kind of infantile to go back to singing Jesus Loves Me in a Sunday school class. And that's how I felt. Well, years later, I saw her again, and after three days of being in my presence, she said, you know, years ago I told you that you should do a study on grace. I still think that you should do a study on grace. And she was right. She was right. It was a fundamental, it was something that I needed to go back to, a basic that I needed to go back to, and we all do. Think about it, right? There, there's never a time in your life where you say, yeah, I was 13 months old when I learned to walk, but I don't need to do that anymore, right? You always go back to the, the, the fundamentals, the basics of walking. Even if you are a gymnast, a, a gold medalist gymnast in the Olympics doing amazing flips and aerial stunts, you always have to come back to the basics of standing, walking, and running. We can never forget the basics. There's something about the basics that we always have to return to. And today, when I was looking at this passage this week, this is all about the basics. And so today, I want to give you two basics from this passage. I want to talk about the mission of the church and the message of the church. The mission of the church and the message of the church. Now, I know that uh, the basic mission of the church is found in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples. Yes, that is the basic mission, but I believe that Paul in our passage goes even more basic than that in saying this, that our mission is to learn these truths, love these truths, defend these truths, and then declare 
these truths. Now, someone who's cynical might join with Pilate and say, what is truth? Right? What is truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. You believe that there's only one way to God, and I think that that's absolutely absurd. You mean to say that all these other people are wrong. This is what you believe, and this is what I believe. This is what works for you, and this is what works for me. Someone who is less cynical might say, how do you know what the truth is, right? I mean, there are so many different religions. There's so many different thoughts. You know, you turn on any, any uh, uh, TV talk show and you're getting a bunch of information. This is how I live. This is what I think that you should do. How do I navigate this? How do I know what is true? Still someone else who has grown up in the church and who has studied uh, the deep doctrines of the Bible might be confused as well. And they might say, I- I've studied some of these deeper things and how do you know what is true? How do you know what is true regarding some of of these things? Because there are brilliant and godly scholars on both sides of of these major issues in the church. Just one example, I think of uh, two heroes uh, in my life that I've listened to ever since I was a child, um, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. Uh, these two guys, uh, R.C. Sproul has passed away, but uh, they're brilliant theologians who have a high view of Scripture. It is the authoritative Word of God, inspired by God, and they have studied it for decades, their entire lives, and yet they come down on different views of different passages of Scripture. For example, R.C. Sproul argued till the day that he died, that we baptize infants. They are covenant children. And John MacArthur will argue till the day he dies. No, we only baptize believers. And that's just one issue that these very godly men differ on. There are tons of other issues as well. And when you look at that, that can be very, very discouraging. But here's the bottom line, that anyone anyone who claims to be a Christian believes the basics about Christianity. If you ever saw John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul interacting, they loved each other. They did conferences together all the time because they believed and they agreed upon the fundamentals that man was created perfectly in the image of God and that man rebelled against God and that man, because of that, is in desperate need of a savior and the only savior of mankind the only way to the father is through the son jesus christ and that was their foundation on these basic truths they could stand together and it's these basic truths that are what are required for salvation right think about it when we get to heaven one day we're not going to walk through the you know the pearly gates or whatever and and meet God and say, oh, it's so good to be here. And he's like, oh, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> you're not in yet. Um, you need to go in this room and uh, you're going to be, you're going to take a theological exam right now. Okay, we're going to ask you a bunch of questions. And so you get in there and you're like, okay, what was your view on predestination versus free will? Okay. All right. What was your view on cessationism versus continuationism? Okay. What was your view on covenant theology versus dispensationalism? Okay. Were you amillennial or premillennial or postmillennial? Okay. And then you wait, right? Until the results are tallied. 
And they come out and just shaking his head. Sorry, you got most of these wrong, so we're going to have to ask you to depart from me, for I never knew you. Is that how it's going to be? Absolutely not. Thank you. Yes. No, it is not going to be like that. In the end, there are two things. What did you believe about Jesus, and what did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the Jesus of the Bible? That's what you will be asked. This basic truth in the Bible is so clear and so easy to understand that even a child could understand it, and that is by God's design. Isn't that awesome? It is not like, oh, until you attain here, you can't come in. No, that childlike faith, that Abba Father, right? I don't know much, but I know that I need you, and I need you desperately. That is what matters. And so should we study the deep things of God? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why? Don't you want to know everything that you possibly can know about God? To know God is to love God, and the more you know about God, the more you love God. Wouldn't you want to say, man, like almost like a a jeweler, you can see him taking a diamond and just flipping it over and looking at it from every aspect. That's what we do with God. Man, I want to know you more. I want to understand this about you. How do you react in these situations? What, What are you in control of exactly? Everything? This is crazy. And yet, you know everything about me? and you still love me? We want to know everything that we can possibly know about him. So I would say study, 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 dig into the meat of the word, but you always have to come back to the milk of the word as well. Study the sovereignty of God and how it relates to the free will of man, but always come back to Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so as the simple message that we need to know. Remember when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we were talking about God's desire to save all people. It is the basic truths of the gospel, those easy-to-understand things where we find salvation and access to God. Before we get into those basic truths, what those basic truths are, uh, let me tell you what we're to do with those basic truths. But before I tell you what we're going to do with those, what we're to do with those basic truths, I want to talk about a simple, wonderful phrase in verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this is the phrase, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Chances are, uh, since you're familiar with the terminology of the household of God and the church, chances are that when I read that and when I just said it again, you didn't even think twice about it. Oh yeah, the church. I've heard that a hundred times before, a thousand times before. Yeah, the church, church. I get it. Chances are it did not move you, but here's what I want to say about this. This basic truth, if fully and truly understood, and if truly and fully contemplated and never forgotten, would absolutely change the way that you think and act. If you truly understood and contemplated, what does it mean to be the church? It would blow you away. I loved the family that I grew up in. I took great pride in being called adoring. 
My dad was the smartest man that I knew. He seemed to know everything about everything. There was nothing that he didn't know. My dad was an accomplished musician, an accomplished musician. My dad was an amazing science teacher. Every year uh, he would lead the school in, in the science fair and they would blow out other schools in the area. My dad, on top of that, uh, was a, uh, uh, he worked hard to provide for our family, sometimes working uh, two jobs to provide for us. When I was in my dad's presence, I felt like nothing in the world could harm me. I was safe. He supported us at our athletic events. He cheered us on. He was the loudest cheerleader. I think I told you he would, he would go to a basketball game and bring an electric megaphone to a basketball game, and he would get kicked out uh, sometimes. You can't do that, right? But he was our biggest cheerleaders. He also disciplined us when we needed it, which was quite often. Um, he seemed to be a father above all other fathers in the neighborhood, and even among our extended family. It was like everyone. He was like the patriarch of the patriarchs when it came to being a father. I saw him as a rock, and as a result of that, I wore his name, the Doring name, with pride. But as great as that household was, I have been adopted into a much greater household than that. I wish I could get into adoption right now as the Bible talks about it because it's absolutely a beautiful thing. Here's the thing about adoption. With biological children, okay, um, you usually don't do the choosing, okay? Um, sometimes it's unplanned, all right? Sometimes you're preparing for it, but you don't know when it's going to come. Uh, sometimes it's unplanned. Sometimes it's a complete surprise. Sometimes it's an accident, um, sometimes your wife drives up to your place of employment and throws a positive pregnancy test at you. That may have happened. Um, but for many, it's usually a surprise. But adoption is never a surprise. Adoption is planned for. Adoption is prepared for. Adoption is someone going in and saying, I want this child to be my own. And that is what God did for us. We were not accidents. We were not a surprise. God, according to the Bible, specifically chose us to be a part of his family. He called us to be a part of his family, and this truth is actually seen in the word church. The word church, as it is used here in the Bible, means the called out ones. The called out ones. We were part of this sinful world, we were doing what we wanted to do, unaware that wrath was waiting for us at the end of time. We were in the foster care system of the world, if you will, where Satan was running it. We were his children, children of the devil. And then God stepped in, called us out, invited us into his family, and gave us a new name. At that moment, we became his, and he became ours. I know you've heard that many times before, but think about it. At that moment, you became his, and he became yours. The God of this universe 
became yours. As a result of that, we were given, as John says, the right to be called the children of God. That's crazy, isn't it? We were given the right, the privilege, us, you look at yourself, right, to be called the children of God. And we were given the astounding privilege of addressing the God of this universe as father or dad. The one who placed all the stars in the heaven, the one who created and sustains everything, the one who controls everything, we call him, oh, that's my dad. That's my father. This means that we have full-fledged membership in the greatest family in the universe, the family of God. You and I have a place at his dinner table, if you will. You and I have a room in his house. You and I are guaranteed an inheritance and all the provisions and the protections that go along with family membership. And it's astounding. It's glorious. Let's think about this household for a second. This household is current, uh, always under attack. Um, the Bible talks about this uh, being Satan, who is real. And he wants to destroy us. He wants to break in and to kill and to steal and to destroy. He is out to get us. He hates God. He hates God's children. But in this household, if I can speak in human terms, we have the most amazing security system, right? We have the most amazing security system that protects us. First of all, let's just start at, 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 at the bottom, if you will. <laughs> what we have is we have the holy angels. The holy angels who the Bible says are sent out as ministering spirits. The holy angels who, who uh, hold us up who take us up on their wings lest we dash our foot against a stone. We have them sent out to minister to us and to protect us. Moving along further, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who guides us into all truth. How is Satan trying to destroy us? He's trying to destroy us by bringing falsehoods. God doesn't really love you. No, 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 no. He doesn't really love you. No, you're not really saved. No, 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 no. And we have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth, to protect us from error. Moving along from there, we have the coolest older brother, right? We have the greatest older brother ever, Jesus. I think I shared this story once um, when my brother uh, and I were just young. We were, uh, I was like, I think maybe seven uh, or eight. My brother was 10. And we would be fishing down at this lake and um, these, these kids would come and they would harass us. These older kids would come and harass us. And I remember them taking my brother and putting him in the lake against his will. Um, they would take the fish out of our bucket and just throw them on the ground in front of us. And there's nothing we could do about that. I mean, they could take us out. And so they would walk away and they're just laughing. And then we would run up the hill. And we would get my brother and our cousins. And we would just sit there and watch as they chased these guys down and shook them down. And it was like, yes, you can pick on me and you can beat up me because I'm weak, but you're not stronger than him. And we have an older brother who has already beat Satan up, right? He's already beat him up. 
He's already conquered him. And then on top of all that, we have a father who does not take it lightly when his children are harassed and attacked. That's the security system that we have in this household of God. In addition to that, we also have a promise of great provision. Great provision. Let me ask you this question. What does God own? Everything, right? Our Father owns everything. And if we need anything, we are to ask, and He will provide. And there's not a time where He's like, oh, don't have that. Give me a week, right? No. He provides, and He either provides naturally or He provides supernaturally. You see the Bible, he's providing naturally and supernaturally. Uh, supernaturally. I, I think about the, the times when Peter and, and Jesus needed to pay their taxes. And Jesus said, hey, Peter, go down to the lake, throw your fishing rod in there, the first fish that you catch, pull it out, open its mouth, and there's our taxes. That's an awesome way to pay taxes, right? Jesus provided. And then I think about when they're, they're at this place and Jesus has been teaching all day, and there's 5,000 men, which means if you include women and children, there's probably about 20,000 people there. And everyone's hungry, and the disciples are saying, send them home so they can eat. And Jesus says, no, feed them. And they're like, impossible, impossible. We have five loaves of bread and two small fish. There's no way. I mean, that's one boy's lunch. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And what does he do? He multiplies it. He provides for everyone there, and they have leftovers. Jesus comes across Mary and Martha, and their brother, their beloved brother, has passed away. He has died. And what does Jesus possess? He possesses resurrection power, right? He can provide life where there is no life. I think about Peter later on in the book of Acts. He is put into prison, and he is delivered supernaturally by an angel of the Lord. We've been given all, we've, we've been called into the greatest household ever. We have the best family name. A name that's better than the Rockefellers, better than the Kennedys, better than the Gates, better than anyone that you can think of. We are called by the name of God. And that's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be the called out ones. The ones who are called out of this world and into the family of God. But this membership in such a great family always also comes with responsibility as well. God has called us to be a part of his family, I believe, for two main purposes. One, so that he can lavish his love upon us and so that we can go out in the world and share that love with others. Satan, as I said before, is alive and well. He is called the father of lies, and the only way to combat lies is with the truth. The only way to overcome the darkness is with the light. You think about how much more powerful the light is than the darkness. If we were to divide this room right down the middle, and this room, let's say that just this wall was just one complete um, uh, sheet of glass where the sun was shining through, and then on this side there was no windows whatsoever. It was sealed off so that it's pitch black, so black that if you, you put your hand in front of your face in this, in this room, it would be, you couldn't even see it. What would happen if we removed the wall? Would the darkness, the thick darkness from here, come out and dim the light over here? No. The darkness would be completely obliterated by the light. 
That's how powerful the truth is. It dispels the darkness. The truth has greater power. That's why the truth is so important. And who is the truth giver? God himself is the truth giver. And who are the keepers and defenders and proclaimers of that truth here on earth? We, the church, the called out ones, are the keepers, the defenders, and the proclaimers of that truth. And so what are we to do with these truths that we find? Um, well, I've already alluded to it. Uh, there are four main things. The first is we are to learn these truths. We are to learn these truths. You cannot proclaim or declare something that you do not know. Uh, if the truth is as powerful as we say it is, then we need to learn it ourselves. We need to be reading it. We need to be studying it. We need to be meditating upon it. We need to make that a priority. We need to turn off the TV. We need to turn off YouTube. We need to turn off social media. We need to turn off the video games, and we need to concentrate and study the Word of God because it contains the truth. Second thing that we are to do with these truths is that we are to love these truths. And this is not a conjured up love. Oh, I'm going to try to love them. No, if you truly understand that you were a sinner deserving hell and eternal punishment, it doesn't take much to love the truth that now you have been forgiven for all your sins. Your debt has been canceled. You are in the family of God and have an amazing, wonderful inheritance promised to you one day. Furthermore, when you realize that in this household that God is bent on showing you love, that God uh, is really determined to maximize your happiness, you start to see these rules, these touch knots and handle knots and thou shalt knots. You don't see them as hindrances to your happiness. You see them as safeguards to your happiness. That you have a God who cares enough to say, if you do this, it's going to hurt you. And I don't want you to do that. Oh, you'll have that temporary satisfaction, but in the end it will hurt you. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about how the psalmist loves the law of the Lord. Laws, loves laws, loves commandments, loves rules, loves statutes. Why? Because he knows that they're guiding him in the right way. The third thing that we are to do is we are to defend these truths. We are to defend these truths. Satan, as I mentioned before, is a liar and the father of lies. He wants to take those truths and either obliterate them or distort them so much so that they are no longer truths. And he is very, very effective at this. And because of this, you and I, as the called out ones, are called to defend the truth. We are to know it, to love it, and to vehemently oppose anyone who tries to distort that truth. We need to correct false teachings, false ideas about who God is and what God requires of us, because there's a lot of junk out there, a lot of stuff that's done in the name of Jesus, and we'll see this next week as in chapter four as he talks about difficult times coming where people are departing from the faith. We must defend these truths. It should be a top priority. If the truth is the foundation, then if we lose that truth, we have lost our footing on which to stand. The final thing that we are to do is we are to declare these truths. We can't just study them and defend them. We can't just hold these in and love them. We need to actually get out and declare these truths to everyone we come into contact with. If we don't, then they don't have a foundation on which to stand, and they will stand in the judgment with no foundation. 
and they will hear those words, depart from me, for I never knew you. They will have built their beautiful, luxurious houses on the shifting, unstable sand of the beach. And when their houses fall, everything in those houses, including themselves, will be destroyed. Think about an unbelieving neighbor or an unbelieving coworker or an unbelieving family member or whoever. If they don't know Jesus, the truth of the matter is, speaking in human terms, they uh, have a terminal disease and you hold in your hand the cure. Will you hold it in or will you give it to them? The faith that they need to enter into the household of God comes through the hearing of the word of God, which is what you and I, as the people of God, possess, and so we need to declare it. So that is the mission of the church. Uh, We are to take this truth and learn it and love it, defend it and declare it. This brings us to the message of the church. what are we to do with, what is this truth that we're talking about? We've seen what we're to do with it. What is this truth? The answer comes in verse 16, and the answer is Jesus. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. Paul begins this verse by saying, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And now, I just want to stop for a second. I don't want to read something in a text that's not there, but when I hear the word great, I think of Paul when he was in Ephesus uh, in the book of Acts, because he's actually writing now to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And when Paul was in Ephesus in the book of Acts, he came across this, this guy who was selling these silver shrines to the, to the goddess Artemis, and making a ton of money. And then Paul said, "Uh, these are worthless idols. Things made with hands are not really gods. And so people started to believe Paul and embrace the gospel. And so Demetrius's cash flow started to dwindle. And so he caused a riot. And people gathered in this amphitheater in Ephesus and cried out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then when you take into consideration that the temple of Artemis was in Ephesus, the temple was one of the seven wonders of the the ancient world. This glorious temple, one of its features is that it had these pillars. It contained 127 pillars, each a gift from a king. All of them were made out of marble. Some of them were overlaid with gold and jewels. There's only one standing today, by the way in Ephesus. But you could see how great and how glorious it was, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And when I take into consideration the fact that Paul is talking about pillars in our passage and that Paul mentions the word great, I can't help but think that it's an attack against the false worship of Artemis, which was still prevalent in the time. And Paul's saying, no, Artemis is nothing. Her structure will fall it's built on a weak foundation. But Paul here is talking about a great mystery. A mystery in the New Testament is a truth that was previously hidden, uh, but has now been revealed. 
And this great mystery that Paul is talking about is this, that the second member, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, God himself actually became a human being. This is a mystery. Like, my goodness, didn't realize that this was going to happen, even though it was talked about in the Old Testament. Here it is. Jesus is here. And these descriptions of Jesus that we see in this final verse, uh, what many believe is that this was a song that was written and sung in the churches in the first, in the first century, proclaiming who Jesus was, each line containing some theological truths. And I want to go just quickly through each of these lines, explaining them, because I believe that in them we have the gospel and what our required response is for it. He begins by saying that he was manifested in the flesh, that he is Jesus. This is a great truth, the great truth of the mystery of the incarnation, that God became man. And why did God become man? Well, we've explained this many times before, but it always bears repeating. The truth of the matter is, is that this, is that God created man perfectly, and then man rebelled against God. And then God said, always, the always, that the wages of sin was death. The payment for sin, the only payment for sin, even the smallest of sins, was death. And the Bible, when it talks about death, it, it, it talks about it as, as the shedding of blood. The shedding of blood uh, is, is kind of how it talks about it. And so what God said is this. So God set up this temporary sacrificial, animal sacrifice, uh, sacrificial system in the Old Testament to where uh, someone who wanted to be forgiven of their sins could bring a perfect spotless lamb, a lamb without any defects, perfectly on the outside reflecting what the character should be of the person who was bringing it but it wasn't. And so what they would do is they would bring it, and that animal, that lamb, would serve as a substitute for them. They would not have to have their blood shed. The animal would have its blood shed. The only problem is, as the book of Hebrews says, that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. It wasn't that lamb that sinned against God. It was mankind that did that. And so man had to pay the price, but man was not perfect. And for him to pay the price for his sins meant eternal separation from God and so God sent his son, who was perfect. He was God in the flesh. And he was the perfect mediator because he could live the life that we could not live and then be punished for our sins and undergo the death that we did not want to undergo. And so Jesus was the perfect mediator between God and man. So he was manifest in the flesh. So the next thing is that he was vindicated in the spirit. The ESV translation uh, capitalizes uh, spirit and I believe that they do so. Uh, I, th I think that's a good way to do it because this is, I believe, talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, and here's why I say that Jesus' perfect life was vindicated or justified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testified that, yes, Jesus was perfect. He was who he said he was. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I believe is proof of this. He says this, uh, concerning his son, that's Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Let me stop there. According to the flesh, remember, he was manifest in the flesh. So he's talking about Jesus being manifest in the flesh. Going on, and he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit bore witness that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus was perfect and that his death was sufficient and the proof of that is because he was raised from the dead. If Jesus had any sin of his own, he would have stayed dead as the penalty for his own sin. 
the affirmation of his perfect righteousness came when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. The third line in, in this passage is that he was seen by angels. Most likely what this is referring to is if you look, angels had a part in all of his life. They were there at the beginning announcing his birth. The, the heavens were filled with them. They were there at his temptation after 40 days of being tempted. They ministered to him and they were there at the empty tomb after he rose again from the dead declaring he's not here for he has risen. So the angels witnessed him being born sinless, remaining sinless, even under intense temptation, and then conquering sin for all of us in his resurrection. The fourth line is that he was proclaimed among the nations. This was the command that was given to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all nations. This is what they were supposed to do according to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were to proclaim it among the nations, and if you look at the book of Acts, you see them faithfully proclaiming the name of Jesus. The fifth line is that he was believed on in the world. This is what Jesus called his disciples to do. They did, and this is what his disciples called their disciples to do, and this is what their disciples called their disciples to do, and right down onto our present day. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him. So we are called to believe on him in this world. And Paul said in Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We are saved from our sins by grace through faith, through believing in Jesus Christ. The final line in this song is that he was taken up in glory. And although chronologically this doesn't fit, right? Because he was taken up in glory before he was proclaimed, before he was believed on in the world. So why does it come at the end? I believe it comes at the end because it's pointing to Jesus' completed work. Jesus did everything that the Father called him to do. Lived the life, the perfect life that was required of us, and then died the death that satisfied the Father's wrath. And then he was done with his mission here on earth. Gave that mission, entrusted it to the disciples, and then Jesus was taken up in glory. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John 17, 4 and 5, he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I laid aside my glory now I want to take it back up. I've accomplished my work. And then Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says, But when Christ had offered for all times a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should become a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus completed his work and was taken up into glory. These are the fundamental, foundational truths of the gospel. These are the pillars on which our salvation rests. Each pillar more precious than gold or silver or any jewels. And this is why we are to learn these things, love these things, defend these things, and declare these things. When we believe these things, we become those who are the called out of the world and into the wonderful family of God. 
with all of the protections, all of the provisions, all of the responsibilities, and all of the rewards that come with it. And so the final thing I want to say is this. If you have not done this, if you have not believed in Jesus, if you could take him or leave him right now, do it now. Don't leave this place without making that decision for Jesus. He stands there and says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I know that sometimes it can just, it can just be words. Yes, I've heard this a hundred times before, maybe even more. And I know that Satan is working overtime right now to snatch away the things that were said. And so we just pray against that right now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and save. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would convict and that you would bring life where there's death right now. And for those of us who do belong to you, Lord, oh, remind us of these truths. Remind us today and this week what it means to be in the family of God. That wonderful privilege to call you our Father. Help me never to forget that. Help none of us to forget that, Lord. We thank you for this time. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.